Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of The Closing Pitch. In this episode, we have Sahil Bloom, who is the VP of a private equity firm in the Bay Area. We talk about how to develop and dominate your learning environments. We also talk about finance and how it can be less intimidating using parables. And lastly, we talk about how the soft skills that you create in your athletic career will give you an unfair advantage in the future. Enjoy. Let's finish it. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of The Closing Pitch. My name is Spiker Helms, and in this episode, we have a special guest all the way from the Bay Area. I have been following him for, oh gosh, it's been about two to three months now, and how I got hooked up following his threads is that I have a, a literally a Twitter list that's called the Iron Pen, okay. and it is literally filled up with finance guys that I follow and that his name kept on popping through my feed consistently. And then I wasn't following him. I was like, who is this guy? The, the threads are just really good. And how I got first introduced to you was, was your story on Federico, which, which is a fictional character that you've come up with. And I want to go down that route. But before we jump in, Sahil, give us a a brief background of who you are and um, and people are probably wondering like why are why, we having a finance guy why are you bringing a finance guy onto the closing pitch uh, because this is a baseball slash business slash leadership podcast um, but go into your background because it's very interesting yeah well first off guys thanks for having me really appreciate being on and it's great to uh, meet face to face so to speak uh, so, so I grew up on the East Coast, uh, Boston area, small town outside outside Boston. Pops was a professor at at Harvard, so kind of grew up right outside Cambridge. Academics were always really important to my family. I also grew up playing baseball, so I was like, yeah, I come from a, a mixed race background. So my mom is Indian, my dad is white. My mom like always wanted me to be a doctor. I was kind of like the ne'er do well son that was <laughs> not studying, you know, as much as I should have. I was playing baseball, I was doing these other things. Um, as it turned out, I was reasonably good at baseball and, uh, you know, put, put in a lot of work around it in high school. And so I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to come out out west and play at Stanford. Um, so ha- had a great blend of the academic and, and athletic experience, got to fulfill both my parents' desires around that uh, and had an incredible experience. Played four years at Stanford, some incredible teams from 2009 to 13. So um, you know, we were in super regionals a couple times, played with you know, some of my best friends, Mark Appel, who ended up getting drafted first overall, Stephen Piscotti, a bunch of these guys still playing, some, some really incredibly gifted guys um, and incredible people, most importantly. But um, had an awesome experience playing. And then when I got done, uh, went on to something else and uh, entered the world of finance, joined an investment fund that was just getting started back in 2014. Uh, out in the Bay Area here, uh, was managing about $500 million at the time. Uh, fast forward seven years, I'm still there, um, co-lead all of our investing in the consumer uh, industry. So sit on the board at a few really cool companies, Fox Racing, which is like a motocross mountain bike brand that people might know, uh, and a few others. But we're managing $2.5 billion today. Uh, really, really cool experience. I've learned a ton along the way. You're... 
Twitter bio, and I know that in some of your podcasts, you always <laughs> you always mention it, and I feel like it wouldn't be a baseball podcast um, if you didn't explain your story. And what's fun, what's what's intriguing about this is that we're we're pretty much the same age. I was down in the Miami regional. You were in the Florida regional, correct? At that time, um, we got knocked out by Stony Brook, and you guys got knocked out by Florida at that time, right? Florida State, yeah. Florida State. Um, Go down that story because, again, with baseball players, it seems like we always talk about the war <laughs> stories that were successful. And, like, again, you had a really successful career at Stanford. Go down that story on um, how you got to that point. Yeah. And it was one of those, like, baseball is a metaphor for life moments for me where it was 2012. We were on top of the world for most of that year. I mean, we were ranked in the top 10 most of the year. Um, I mean, we'd gotten as high as one, actually, at one point. But um, came down the stretch, we blew our last series of the year to our rivals, Cal. And so we ended up, we hosted regionals, um, but didn't have a national seed, which ended up being impactful for a reason I'll explain. So we hosted regionals, um, had a few teams there. I closed the regional championship game and it was like the highest high of my entire life to date. I mean, like, you know, had a full pack stands, like slow clapped into the last out. Everything you imagine as a kid about a baseball moment had it. My dad was there, like came down, gave him a big hug when we closed. Like everything about it was just perfect. So, like storybook for me, especially because I knew that that was going to be kind of the highest highs that I was achieving in baseball. Um, fast forward a week, we have to fly to Tallahassee to play Florida State in Super Regionals. Um, and so I'm coming off this incredible high. I think I'm, you know, really, really good. Like all of a sudden I, you know, <laughs> gotten a little full of myself and I got called into uh, one of the super regional games without having thrown a warm up pitch, which I don't know that I've ever talked about with the Stanford coaches, but they never called down <laughs> to the end to get anyone loose. And so like, I see the, I see the pitching coach coming out calling for the righty and I'm looking around and like, there's no one warming up. I'm the only one down there. And I was just like, the the bullpen um, catcher looks at me. He's like, well, shit, like <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta go, I guess. And so I went in um, and bases were loaded and I served one up and some like guy on Florida State, I think his name was Seth Miller. It's, it's like ingrained in my mind, um, just hit an absolute bomb grand slam to like, it, the game had been tight. And so it was like a huge key moment um and that thing is still flying somewhere <laughs> um, so, so that's what's in my twitter bio but you know it's somewhat facetious that i have it in there but at the same time there's a really interesting lesson in life about you know never getting too high never getting too low and getting back up from those you know those tough moments there was nothing i wanted to do more in that moment than just like curl up and die uh, but i had to get the next guy out and you gotta you know pick up pick up the ball and and do your job which is a good segue into the thread that got me to send you a DM, which is the 10 competitive advantages you can start developing today where you, not, you don't really need that much talent to really execute on these things. Can you go into that thread and give me like the backstory of it and like how you just really thought about it? Because it, it really was a segue between finance world, but also every other industry yeah. and i think that's why the, tr the thread really took off could you go like into the background of that yeah i mean this is something i've been thinking about for a long time i want to write a book on it at some point actually in my life but i 
you know, I've never felt like um, the most talented or, or gifted at anything I did. Um, you know, I thought I was amazing in high school. Uh, I thought I was like the smartest person in the world. I just thought way too highly of myself. You know, you're high school, big fish, small pond. I came out to Stanford um, and my first day, I'll never forget, like going to class and going to baseball and realizing you're, you're actually not that smart uh, and you're actually not that good at baseball. And so I kind of got metaphorically punched in the mouth um, and it was an incredibly humbling experience. But I also remember having the realization, like, I'm going to have to put in work uh, if I want to achieve anything here. And that's what it's going to come from. It's not going to be because I'm the most gifted or talented because I'm not. I'm not the smartest, whatever it might be, but I know that there are things about me that no one can compete with. Um, and what are those things? And so over the years, I kind of just started to build that list um, and learn about these areas of your life that you have complete control over um, that really are durable competitive advantages because most people will never uh, will, will never go after them and will never embrace those things in their life. So, so that was kind of the genesis of it. Um, and I started just putting it together. I, um, I put it out there because I thought it was, I thought it would be helpful for a lot of people. I think there are a lot of people that are in that similar, um, in that similar mindset. Like they know they're not the most talented, but they haven't figured out yet. How can they win then? And how can you compete if you're not going to be gifted at X, Y, or Z? And the reality is like so much of life is just showing up, being curious, asking questions, being dependable, like the things that I hit on on that thread um, are amazing, amazing advantages over the vast majority of people in the world. And so when you go out and compete, um, you don't need that talent to go to go achieve what you're going after. Well, what I liked about it was when Spiker sent it my way, I really because I'm not a finance guy. So so he he sent me your follow and I started following. But the way that you make complexitive situations very simple and just basically break it down into those key variables that you mentioned there that can be applicable to anybody in any space which i really really like because a lot of times things just get way too overcomplicated and you won't even take the first step to go forward with it yeah i completely agree and look it, that was the thesis behind me spending more time on twitter and what i do and the writing that i do was there are all these concepts originally within business and finance, but it applies to life that like the experts, quote unquote, have been intentionally overcomplicating these things forever because they don't want you to think that you can do it yourself. Like that, that's just the bottom line of it. They want to insulate themselves from disruption. You know, they, they the, the person that tells you like, you know, all these complexities about the stock market and this and that, because they want you to pay them to, to do manage your money for you. Like whatever it might be, um, I was trying to cut through that. And I think if there's anything I've done that's particularly unique, it's zero jargon, zero BS. Like, I know all the jargon. I've spent time in this world for a while, but there's no need for it. You can cut through all of it and make the education and the information accessible to so many more people uh, if you just cut through all that noise. The intellectual curiosity was number one. And I don't think that that's talked about enough. And I think it's because it doesn't start at a very early age, um, especially in high school, because when I was in high school, um, both of you yep. could probably relate to this, is that, hey, just pass classes. Just yep. get the C. Let's get you on the field. Let's see how, let, and we'll be fine. But it's not really dominating your field. It's not dominating. Like, why would I want to just get a C? If I'm shooting for a C, I'm more likely going to get a C. 
how how do you how did you approach your curiosity, your intellectual curiosity when everyone around you is probably just trying to pass classes, especially in the jock world? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think there's two sides to this. One, um, our traditional education system does a horrible job of fostering intellectual curiosity among children. Like you're born curious. I don't know if either of you have kids, but like kids constantly ask why. That's like the most annoying thing. Parents get so annoyed about how kids keep asking why, why, why is something this way? That's intellectual curiosity. We do a horrible job of, of fostering it. You know, we're basically accustomed to saying because I said so or because that's just the way it is. You know, whatever that might be, we cut off intellectual curiosity at an early age when we should be promoting it. Um, we should be spending time going down those rabbit holes, understanding things on a first principles basis with kids, understanding why certain things are the way they are. So that's number one is I think, you know, our school system just doesn't encourage you to be intellectually curious. It encourages you to color within the lines. It encourages you to just like read the book you're supposed to read, nothing else, do the little book report and just like kind of follow a very linear path. And that's not how people learn. It's not how kids learn. Um, so that's number one. I, th I think we just do a bad job with that. Um, and then number two, I just think it's all about pursuing what you become interested in. Um, and that's not the same for everybody. Uh, and you can make money and make a career in almost anything today. And you're much more likely to do it in something that you're passionate about, something that you want to go down the rabbit hole um, around. I mean, I have friends who spent tons of time playing video games. Um, if you're passionate about video games, there is an unbelievable business world brewing around the video game industry. It is extraordinarily uh, interesting, complex, future-oriented, the future of the gaming companies. Uh, there is an incredible intellectual rabbit hole you can go down around something you're passionate about. It's not like you know you need to be the ne'er-do-well kid that's just sitting around playing video games every day. If you're passionate about it, go learn more about it. I mean, and in our school systems, we should encourage that, in my opinion. I mean, if someone is really passionate about video games, why are they reading Pride and Prejudice the same as every other kid? Like, why don't they have the opportunity to read interesting sci-fi, um, things that are like triggering their brain in the right way that they're excited about reading and learning? Um, so it, it's mostly for me a gripe with our education system, um, but it's also a lesson for parents and how to, how to foster that, I think. It's really interesting that we're, we're teaching students a certain subject when there's a virtual virtual reality world that's brewing like you said and it's very fascinating like i was on the real vision um crypto gathering and the metaverse i forgot who brought it on but raul was interviewing them and i was just blown away i was like holy cow there is something just we don't even like i'm in the baseball world right so we see win reality that has virtual real that's doing virtual but it's getting to a point where it could end up being where kids could be learning from the best teachers in the world in a virtual reality yeah. world. It's sooner than we think. Um, and Re Real Vision is an incredible resource, by the way. I love love Raoul and love the team there. Um, but the I mean, the metaverse is coming and it's sooner than we think. And I think within my children's lifetime, we will spend you know, probably the majority of our waking hours in some form of virtual world, learning, producing, uh, all of these things. And it's mind blowing to think about and maybe a little scary, um, but it is <laughs> yes. an interesting future. I mean, you think about a world where a kid that's born on the streets of India can access the exact same 
incredible learnings, professors, um, opportunities that a kid that's born to a wealthy white family in America, like that is a powerful force um, for equality globally, which is an amazing end, I think. Do you think that'll just shape the entire way of how we learn things? I mean, just do you, do you think that's going to basically take the take down the establishment that we have of like higher education? I think that the the landscape of higher education is going to fundamentally change. I, I don't think the value of a Harvard degree, a Princeton degree, a Stanford degree, like I don't think that is ever going to materially change because of the scarcity. Um, that that's what they traffic in, right? Like. It's not that the degree is that much better than any other place. It's just that they only admit a thousand kids or whatever the number is out of a hundred thousand that apply. And so um, they they uh, promote the scarcity value that makes it valuable. I don't think that goes away. I do think if you're a tier two, tier three, tier four school, you have to be really worried about why a kid would come pay 50 grand a year and take on a bunch of debt to come to your school when they're going to have access to all of these incredible teachers and learnings on the Internet. Um, for free or very cheap. And so that, that's where I think you're going to see this massive shakeout over the coming five, 10 years. I don't know if you've thought about this, but how does that change athletics? How do you see it? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I haven't thought about it too much. Um, yeah, I have, it's, it's an interesting thread to think about more. I, I haven't thought about it much, to be honest. When, when talking about like recommendations for like for parents and coaches, um, even just players, like if some players listening to this, how would you tell them to foster their intellectual curiosity? I think it's all about pursuing what you're interested in. Um, I mentioned the video game example, but like find ways to bridge things that you're uh, naturally passionate about with things that there are business careers, life careers in, um, and go down those rabbit holes. When you find that like moment of intellectual curiosity, don't wait and say like, oh, I'll do that later. I'll learn about it later. Um, just dive into whatever it is. And, and this is exactly what I do. I read for the first hour of every morning and I don't have like a set of books that I'm reading or like one book that's sitting there that I have to finish. Um, I just wake up, I you know pop open whatever it might be on my iPad and I see what piques my interest, like what, what article or what story or what book, what, whatever it is, like what am I excited to read right now? And I just read that. Um, because I find that like, if you're trying to force yourself to do something, you're never actually absorbing it. You're never really learning from it in the same way that you otherwise would. And so it's all about just like when you have those moments of curiosity or something you're curious about, just embrace it and go after it. So you don't read books cover to cover. You know, this is something that I've changed in the last uh, year. I've like strongly changed my opinion on, I used to be a, um, finish the book like you have to finish it if you start page one and i was very very tight about it um every single book and i would spend hours grinding through these books that i just hated um and i think it was like naval that i saw talk about like why are you doing that basically um because you're taking away time from something that you would be reading that you'd be excited about and absorbing uh and so i changed my tact on it probably about six months ago um, and now I don't. Now I just like if I'm fired up about something, I'll read the whole book in one sitting. Um, and if I get into it, I'm, it's not sticking with me. I'll abandon ship on it. Do you, do you do you find that like your memory is better when you read something that is paper, like you're actually reading paper, or is it like or reading a screen? Yeah, that, I was I'm, I'm I always debate this in my head. Yeah, I'm pretty old school. I like paper books. I like 
printing out articles, which I, I don't, I wouldn't tell any environmentalist because I, I guess I feel bad about it. But like, I'm, I'm old school, man. I, I have an iPad, I have a Kindle. Um, I still prefer a good paper book. Comfort and discomfort. That was number two, and we've talked about yeah. this a lot. And I feel like baseball is just the epitome of number two. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, we have the saying: you have to be comfortable with being discomfortable. Yeah, like it's like literally, I mean, you know how it is if uh, you didn't play junior college baseball, but like you're literally playing in like 20 degree weather in February and you don't have heaters, you don't have a clubhouse. Didn't have that at Sanford. You're you're changing, (laughs) you're changing in the actual parking lot. And it's like, that's literally discomfort at a whole new level. How, how do you handle discomfort going from learning from the baseball world and actually applying it into the real world? Because I feel like a lot of parents, when they say, all right, we're going to do club baseball, we're going to do travel baseball. Um, and they have this idea of like, oh, they're going to go play college. But I think there's more to it than that, which is um, they're learning a lot of the life skills at a very young age. Yeah. Like, how do you how do you how do you how do you see that going from your playing career to, to the real real world? I mean, the bottom line is everything you learn in baseball, not the on-field skills, but everything you learn in baseball is directly applicable to your next life and your next career. And it makes you unbelievably valuable in whatever the next context is if you embrace it. The comfort with discomfort one is, again, it's like you said, it's everything in baseball. I mean, you just have to get, it's the practice process, it's in games when you're like in a tough situation and you're feeling uncomfortable in that spot or you're not feeling comfortable at the plate and you're needing to work through something in practice because uh, you're struggling and you know you need to pick up for your team. Um, you know, it's those early mornings, like all of those things when you're grinding with your team, when you get out into the quote unquote real world, that stuff is is there. It's just in a different manifestation. So you're needing to apply those same skills, you know, the ability to be there with your team, the ability to grind through moments and find that growth. Um, that's everything. I mean, when I was starting out my first job, um, I was sitting, I was probably working a hundred hours a week for a while there, uh, you know, as an analyst. And it was to me, like, I just loved it. It was like, Oh, this is the grind. This is the exact same thing that I went through when I was trying to make it from a baseball perspective. It's a different field that I'm on now. Um, but it's the same thing. And the thing I loved about it, which is unique, I've never really talked about this is, Baseball, what frustrated me about the sport was that it was so luck-based. It felt luck-based at times where, like, I could work harder than Mark Appel. Like, I could spend way more hours than him. And I did, by the way. And I would say that to him. I worked way harder than the guy. But I was never going to be better than him. Like, it just wasn't going to happen. There was no world. Um, Because he could work hard enough, and he was super, super talented. And I could throw a great pitch, and some guy would, like, poke one down the right field line. I could do a great pitch and some guy hits a bomb, whatever it might be. There was a lot of luck involved. Um, And in the real world, like when you put in work and you grind it out, there's a pretty direct correlation between that and success. And it is for baseball players so refreshing um, to suddenly feel like, wow, all of the work I put in is completely, I can see it. It ties directly to exactly what I'm going to achieve, what I'm going to earn, what I'm going to, you know, how I'm going to grow. Um, and that's like this big unlock. I just remember being like this weight off my shoulders where I felt like, oh, okay, if I just outwork people um, and I'm more focused and have more energy around learning these things, I'll just do better. Um, and I'll just continue to rise. And if that's all it is, if it just is, requ- if all of it requires is me being consistent, 
uh, me being passionate, diving in on things, you know, grinding around it. I could do that all day. Like no one's going to outgrind me on that. Everyone likes to say that, but I really feel that. And I still do to this day. Um, and I think that matters. It's like suddenly you feel this big unlock that it just, it ties directly. I always, it's, it's funny. Like when, co- when coaches are like yelling at you or like having this great speech, like at 6am workouts and you're just like, man, I, I don't know what you're seeing, man. Like, I just want to go home. <laughs> and when you get into the real world, you have this like vision of your coach telling you like all these things. And it's like literally coming true, yeah. which is like, Oh, I get it. It's like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And you need, you, you don't have that coach yelling at you the same way. Um, and so it's the, I find that baseball players and team sports athletes in general have that drilled into them where it's internal by the time they get there. Um, I personally find that just like team sport athletes are incredible junior hires because you know, I mean, if you see someone that's gone and played a sport in school and, and achieved at a reasonable level academically, like, you know what that person's about for the most part, it's sort of like hiring a West Point grad. Like I know a West Point grad isn't a slacker. It's just, it's impossible. They couldn't have achieved what they achieved, um, and been a slacker or been a bad teammate. Um, and I feel that way about athletes that, you know, performed at a, at an elite level and did well in school. There was a lot that came with that. And I, I know that, um, I think employers need to come around to that a bit more, frankly, I have been shocked that like when I was in my recruiting process, I didn't think most employers really got it, um, around that, but there's a power there, um, that really never goes away. I, I think that goes to like one of your thread points was, relentless consistency and that's kind of what you learn through sports there's so much monogamy just like doing the same things or monotony sorry doing the same things over and over and over but you just keep doing them Mm -hmm. because you know that they're going to add up you're going to keep stacking those wins and that eventually that's going to translate to the field and get you to the place you want and as a team sport you're going to grow and it's the same concept of what you're talking about right here of you know starting off as an analyst and putting in the hours upon hours and just understanding that those hours are going to get you ahead of your competition the guys who you're fighting for that next position for yeah absolutely i mean this goes to a financial concept too it's compounding um, you know, it's like the, the power of compounding. Einstein called it the eighth wonder of the world. Um, and it's true. And it applies to investing just as much as it applies to, to life and, you know, your own personal growth. But what it requires is long time periods and consistency. Uh, and so for me, I just, and my dad taught me this, you know, my, my dad's grandfather was a vegetable peddler in New York. Um, and <clears throat> what I always had instilled in me was that he just showed up every single day. He wasn't ever going to make a ton of money. Uh, he was never going to be the richest, whatever, but he punched the clock every single day. You show up, you earn money for your family, you take care of them. Uh, and there, that, that, that there is a beauty and a pride in that. Uh, it doesn't need to be the flashy success, you know, that everyone talks about and writes books about. There's a real beauty and an elegance in just showing up and punching the clock. And that was kind of how I felt about my baseball career. It was, I knew I was never going to be the like sexiest pitcher on the team, you know, throwing the like nastiest stuff. But I also knew I was just going to show up and just come at guys over and over again. And like, you weren't going to be able to phase me in that way. I was just going to show up and do it. Um, And I feel that way from a professional standpoint as well. Uh, Like no one will just continue to show up the way that, the way that I do. Um, And it's a real competitive advantage. I mean, I, I just, like I wake up early every day and I just have for the last, I don't know, now it's seven, eight years. And year one, people are like, oh, you're going to burn out. You got to, you know, stop doing that, sleep or whatever it is. Um, 
And now I'm kind of just like, okay, when, when am I going to burn out? When's that, you know, like you keep saying that, but it's been seven, eight years now. Like I haven't seen it. So well, It's that I craving to compete. It's that craving to compete with yourself. I think that's what sports does really well is it teaches you how to cra- like crave that point to where like my 2022 self is going to be way better at, than 2021 without a doubt. Yeah. And the competitive advantages thing, I mean, it's interesting because I saw a lot of people respond to that, um, you know, saying like, why does it always have to be competing against other people? And like, you know, people on Twitter sometimes go down these weird rabbit holes. But anyway, I saw a lot of responses like that. And part of it to me was like, it doesn't have to be competing against everyone else and saying like zero sum game, I'm going to win, you're going to lose. Personally, I'm very positive sum minded. Like, I think if I'm winning, that's great for a lot of people. And, you know, like, it, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Um, but I think it's a big, a big part of it is competing against yourself, competing against who you were yesterday. Are you going to get a little bit better? Or are you going to get a little bit worse? Because I, I don't think there's such a thing as staying the same. We're all, you know, dying one day at a time. So unless you're really making progress, um, there's what else is the point of being around here? Which I find this super fascinating with your college career where you are an athlete and you end up choosing to major in economics. I majored in economics and I would just love to hear your, your side of it on why you chose a very hard major compared to, and you know, like each college has their easier type of major. Um, that people go down. Um, why did you choose economics out of all the different things that you could have chosen? More of an easier. Yeah, way. you know, I, I wanted to challenge myself. Um, and my, my dad's an economist um, by trade, so I knew, uh, you know, I knew the field had prospects beyond sports. I, and frankly, I think in the back of my mind, I knew, like from day one or early at Stanford. I'm probably not going to make a career out of this because I saw how good some guys were. I, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts. Like I thought I was that good. And then I remember watching the first day of bullpens and seeing guys and being like, the ball gets to the plate a lot faster when they throw it than when I do. <laughs> like, there's something going on here. Um, so you know, I, I, I called my dad and I remember him just saying like, remember why you're there. Like, remember what you bring to the table. That's unique. Um, and that went beyond the baseball field in his mind. You know, he was, he was talking more holistically. Um, and so for me, economics was a great opportunity to challenge myself. Um, and I, you know, I, I wasn't doing computer science. Uh, I don't think I would have had the time to do that between baseball and, and academics, but, um, it was a great major that was challenging enough, um, and really pushed me, you know, I had to really push from a, from a math standpoint and, and kind of in areas that again, I was uncomfortable with. Did your parents have an athletic background? Not really. No, my, uh, my mom, definitely not. Although I guess my grandfather, uh, my grandfather on my Indian side was like a state national team cricket player. So they're somewhat applicable to baseball there, but no, my dad didn't really play, um, sports. His, his dad didn't really let him, uh, play sports growing up. Uh, wasn't a super nice guy, long story. Um, but, uh, no, my dad didn't really play. He is athletic though. I will give him credit. I don't want him to get mad at me listening to this. So did they ever give you advice on the athletic yeah. field or did they just really rely on the clubs or the team that yeah. you're playing on? My parents were the ultimate, like great baseball parents, which I'm so grateful for because I see, you know, the way that some parents have gotten, um, you know, not trusting coaches and thinking they know better and whatnot. My parents were always of the mindset that like, we are experts in certain things, baseball, uh, baseball training, those things we are not. And so what you do when you're when you're not an expert in something you outsource to people that are 
Uh, and so I had, you know, I had the benefit of like, my parents basically handed me over to Eric Cressy when I was 16 and gave that gave him, you know, their full trust. And so I was able to be in that environment, whether it was with my coaches at in high school, my coaches at Stanford, uh, Eric, you know, all, all of these people along the years where my parents just had full trust in them, didn't come and show up and question everything that was happening. And like, you know, say, why are you doing this and this? And why aren't you playing my kid? Whatever it was. I mean, my mom doesn't understand what baseball is really. So um, <laughs> I think it was a great thing, frankly, because it separated the lines um, that uh, that I had to live on. So well, you you had Eric Cressy before Eric Cressy became Eric Cressy? Before Eric Cressy became Eric Cressy. I, yeah, I um, so I illegally drove uh, to meet Eric for the first time at his um, he was then working out of some random facility, actually just renting space, like before it was Cressy Performance. Uh, but I, I didn't have a driver's license. <laughs> so I took my mom's car and drove uh, drove a few miles to go see Eric. So hopefully the police don't come after me for that. It's been like 16, 17 years now. Yeah. <laughs> Finance and mental models. This is very intriguing to me um, because I'm in the same boat as you when it comes to finance. We don't teach our younger generation, how to do finance. Like we had this conversation yeah. right before we got on. Um, and like, I love your allegory to finance. Like I find it really good. He read through most of the threads and simplified it. What is your mission on this? Like what, what caused you to say, Hey, I'm going to go down this route. I'm going to teach people a very complicated subject and I'm going to make it into simple terms. I think there is an incredible power in um, people feeling like they understand and can take control of their own life prospects from a wealth creation standpoint. Um, when I think about the things you learn in school and the things you're taught in school, <clears throat> I learned about uh, the isosceles triangles, the Ming dynasty, mitochondria. I learned to play the recorder for some reason, uh, but I didn't learn anything about uh, budgeting. I didn't learn anything about taxes. I didn't learn anything about investing. Uh, and that is a travesty because when you think about what's impactful for your life, what do people want in life? They want to be able to take care of their family. They want to be able to take care of their kids, give their kids a better life than they had. It's like, it's fundamental It's and it's universal. Um, and how do you do that? Well, it's through financial wellness in a lot of cases. You, you need to understand these things and understand that if I'm putting little bits of money away when I'm young, saving this, investing, whatever it might be, doing the right things, I'm gonna be able to take care of my family. Like, it, it doesn't matter how much money I'm earning, by the way, I don't need to be earning, uh, you know, 250 grand a year in order to do it either. Like, there is a power in compounding and in just doing the right things early on, but we need to teach it. Uh, and right now, all of our systems, our schools don't teach it, and the people that are trying to uh, get the information across are using so much jargon, so many complex terms, that if you're not from a background in finance, your eyes blaze over. Uh, you know, both my parents are very well educated. Neither one of them comes from a finance background, and they are constantly getting pitched on things and having to ask me. Um, and just the fact that they have a kid that's in finance gives them an advantage around it because I can explain these things. But like, for two highly educated people to not understand the stuff that's coming across, like, how is anyone supposed to? Right? It's very, um, it, it's a very opaque industry. And so my whole mission with it is to demystify these concepts for people, cut through the noise, stop using jargon, uh, make it as simple as possible so that anyone can understand it um, and can learn from there. And it's it's a base of knowledge that you can build upon over time. The education system's getting there, but 
what what would you tell to a parent that is like, man, I love what I love what you're saying. I I totally get it. How would you implement it inside of a family? That's interesting. I, I think it's um, teaching kids from a young age. I mean, like what I plan to do with my kids. I want to, you know, when they're one or when they're two, I'm going to start buying them, you know, a little stock and some little account, you know, tiny amounts of money, whatever it is. But then when my kid is five, uh, I can talk to him about like, hey, you own a little bit of Apple, or you own a little bit of Amazon and whatever it is, and you use it as teaching moments. Um, it'll become a financial moment as they get older. But over time, there are these interesting things, I think, where you can like gamify it a bit for a kid. You can talk to them about the different companies. Kevin Hart um, talked about it in one of my favorite ways where he said like he sits in the car with his kids and he asks them to point out different companies that they see like as they're driving by and they talk about that company and like, you know, pass a Domino's pizza like, well, how does Domino's pizza make money? Let's talk about it. Like, what do they do? What have they done well? What have they done poorly? Um, and it's so interesting because then you're kind of you're learning in a family context. It's a little fun, um, but you're also like developing this interest in business, this interest in finance. Um, that's really powerful, no matter what career those kids go into. Do you think that translates over to the sports world from a parent's perspective with their kids? In what sense? Like in, in like the sense of just like dabbling into certain little like how do you start off? Like because that to me, it's the same type of complexity of choosing where to go first. I mean, now there's so many different options out there of where to start. How much training do I get? How much? How many hours do I put in with my kid? Do you see the same sort of like... Do you um, think that conversation should be open? Do you think that should be an open conversation? Yeah, I do. And I think <laughs> I'm a big proponent of like, let the kids play, like let, let kids be kids. Um, and I see a lot of specialization now. I mean, part of like the best parts of my kid childhood were playing a bunch of different sports with all my friends and you know, sucking at some sports and being great at others and just like figuring it out. Like the athleticism that comes with that, um, that's built up over time. I mean, some of the guys that I knew that I thought the most highly of from a baseball standpoint were like incredible athletes in these other sports because they just kept playing different things. It used different muscles. It was like different just dynamism as an athlete. So I'm big on just like the same way you want your kids to be intellectually curious about different subjects and diving into different things let them be like athletically curious and, you know, dive into different things if they're excited about whatever it might be. Federico, I've been waiting for this. I, I want you to explain your fictional character um, because a lot of people, uh, this general audience, I think would get a lot of benefit from hearing about your character, um, Mr. Federico. This was the first thread that um, I wrote on Twitter. So this is like May, 2020. Uh, I had basically no followers on Twitter at the time. And uh, I was trying to explain to my friends who kept asking me, how is the stock market soaring while the economy is like completely shut down? It's like, you know, May, 2020, we're in the heart of the lockdowns, but somehow the stock market is like raging. Um, and so I was trying to explain this concept of, it's what's known as the Fed put, like basically the idea that there's a buyer of last resort in the markets, which is the Fed, the Federal Reserve. Um, and so I created this fictional character, uh, use a parable, use a story uh, to explain in simple terms uh, what's happening and like how that impacts a market when there's someone that just says, hey, I'll buy whatever you're selling at any price. Um, and that was what I used. I used this fictional character, Mr. Federico. I came in, I wrote it um, in my garage. I just like had the idea and I sat down on the floor and wrote it. And uh, I came inside and I told my wife, like, 
this is going to go viral. This is really, <laughs> and she kind of rolled her eyes at me and was like, okay, you got, you know, 500 Twitter followers. Like, what do you mean it's going to go viral? And, uh, you know, lo and behold, it did. And that was kind of the start of, uh, of my whole Twitter thing, because I realized like, wow, there's a market for simplifying, breaking down, using storytelling to get these concepts across. Anyone that has not, that, um, that has not read this thread, please go to his Twitter account and, and read it right now. Cause you have two stories on Mr. Federico. Um, the one that I love the most is the seashells, um, on the alien planet <laughs> because it really describes what is happening with the currency and, uh, fiat money. Um, just, it was, a, it was perfectly done. Um, what's been your most significant finding as you've been creating these Twitter, Twitter threads? threads? Just the amazing reach of, uh, of social media and like the networks it creates, all of the incredible benefits from building community. Um, I'm blown away. Now. I mean, now it's kind of nuts when I look at like how many people are following me on there and I'm totally blown away by it because I just feel like I'm a normal guy that, you know, I still respond to DMs like he DM'd me and I, <laughs> I replied <laughs> and now I'm on here. Um, but you know, seeing my stuff translated into Arabic, you know, Chinese, like all these different languages, like I, it's just such a thrill to me um, how many people are impacted um, and hopefully positively by the stuff that I'm putting out there. Because I've spent a lot of time on it. I mean, it's been hundreds of hours over the course of last year and I have, you know, like I'm not really getting paid for it. I'm not charging anyone for anything. So it's really just been something I've enjoyed, something I'm passionate about. Um, and so I'm just blown away. I'm very thankful, very grateful for for people following along and, and hopefully they find some value in it. Yeah, that's what I said to Spiker before this. I was like, the amount of time you had to put in on those threads to think about taking something as complex as, as what is happening right now, where so many people don't understand it and simplifying it to that nature where even a guy like myself, I, I don't understand your world that much, but I felt like I understood that perfectly. And that is a skill that is super uncommon today, and but very, very valuable. Because even if you're talking about the pitching motion, like you go to Eric Cressy, right? And I'm sure Cressy was unbelievable explaining to you the movement patterns of a pitcher and why you're doing certain things. But most people would be totally mind blown by that if, if you want a complex route. So I thought that was really interesting. I just wanted yeah, to yeah. It's like simplify when others complicate. That was one of the uh, one of the competitive advantages. I think it's a huge one. It's also a hack for learning. Um, you know, for me, like I've learned so much during this process of writing these things because in order to distill something down to those simple terms, you have to understand it really deeply. And so on all of these subjects, I'm kind of learning alongside the community that I'm sharing it with. Um, because I have to go through that process of researching and writing and distilling, uh, in order to get there before I share it. How long does it usually take you for one Twitter thread? Sort of depends on what it is. If it's something I already knew pretty well, it can be, you know, two, three hours, but there's some stuff that's taken me eight to 10 hours. Cause I had to go down a rabbit hole around research and writing and making sure it was tight enough. And I don't share stuff like, you know, I, I write one a week maybe, or share one a week. Um, I'm not like posting every day, posting different hot takes and stuff. I don't post politics. I, you know, like I, I don't really comment on things I use it, you know, and I, I want people to know that when I share something, it's going to be high quality. Uh, and so for me, it's just, that has been the mantra I've played by it. And, um, it takes time and it's just like, I won't share something if I don't think it's good. Um, and I've held off and not posted something for two weeks cause I didn't feel like I had something that was, 
uh, uniquely valuable to the community I was going to share it with. I, I, I value that trust that I feel like I've built with people um, very, very highly. You keep mentioning that word community, which to me is <clears throat> what's so unique about social media these days is where you can build out a community over any topic that you're talking about. Like in our world, we, we talk about, you know, we're, we're a baseball club that's a national club and we have kids of all different ages trying to learn this game and learn the different nuances of it. So we try to do the same type of thing through like Twitter threads and different content creation, but it's really unique to figure out how you can build that community from a national perspective and find people that you would have never met, you know, and that that's to me one of the coolest things about passing along that information and making complex situations simple. So that that is where social media is trending these days and the community aspect is so cool. To me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the micro community idea. I think it's much more powerful to have a community of a thousand that are like raving fans and want to engage and are around you than a hundred thousand that don't really care. Um, and so I've always taken the approach of like, I want people to know I'm a real guy. I respond to things when people send me, you know, good faith DMs, I'll respond. I, um, I reply to a lot of mention, you know, people that tag me or tweet at me and things like that because I care about it. You know, I'm not, um, again, this isn't like a money-making scheme for me. I'm not trying to like sell people a bunch of stuff, interesting thing, whatever. Um, I just, I genuinely enjoy it. I've been, I enjoyed engaging with the community along the way. Finance world is very scary, um, for some people. Right. And we've talked about Twitter. Who are your top three follows that you really look to and you're like, man, this is a person that people need to follow and really learn um, and uh, learn the world that's what's what's happening um, in economics, finance, um, even in the new digital age that we're going into the metaverse and crypto uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, who are your top three follows? Yeah, there are a few that I think are really good. You mentioned Raul Paul earlier. Um, he's the co-founder and CEO of Real Vision. He's also a personal friend. Um, he's incredible writes a lot on, especially right now, a lot on like the future of digital currencies and cryptocurrencies and things of that sort that I think is great. Um, there's a guy by the name of Matthew Ball uh, who writes a lot on the metaverse, gaming, streaming, um, those things. He's incredible. He writes these long form essays, but he's also on Twitter. Um, and then there's a guy, um, Gavin Baker, um, who is an investor um, and is just very thoughtful about different kind of technology and growth trends um, and posts interesting articles and, and interesting insights on them. So th those would probably be my three right now. Sahil, this has been an unbelievable conversation. Um, one thing about this podcast is that we have a closing pitch. Um, so what we do is we just, it's like a recap of the show and what, what was the big takeaway from, um, this episode? Um, I'm going to have Dave, um, knock it off and then I'll have you go and then I'll finish up with my closing pitch. What I loved about this episode and getting to meet you and, and really listen and learn is, is, is your unique skill to, like I've said it about three times in this episode, but make something that is super complex, super simple and putting the time in to do that. And that is something that will translate into any sector of business that you're in, if you're teaching a sport, running a business, or in finance. And that is something that if people just learn to take the time to do, to even if they want to just learn on their own, it can be, it can be really uniqueful and impactful in someone's life. So like even this, on a, on a finance perspective, I've learned so much just listening to this conversation and, listen, and learning about concepts that maybe I can take over into my business and work with the kids that I get to and the, and the coaches across the country that we work with 
and really just trying to impact their lives in a, in a more simple nature. So I appreciate that. Sahil, go ahead. So I guess mine would just be like, there is no, there is nothing really unique um, about me, just to be totally honest. Like this is, this is earned. This is, you know, built uh, over time. This is hundreds of hours at whatever it might be, you know, for a period of time, it was baseball. Uh, it was academics. It's my career, the Twitter stuff. Like there was nothing kind of given along that way for me. Um, and it's something I feel strongly about. It's punching the clock. I, I've certainly, you know, been very fortunate in my life with, uh, with different things, but anyone can go after this stuff. It's what I was trying to get across with that competitive advantages thread. We all have these things within us and you just need to go and embrace them and go after it. How can they follow you? What's your, your, go ahead and put your Twitter account out there and anywhere else that they can follow you. Yeah. So I'm at Sahil Bloom on Twitter, just my name. Uh, it's the benefit of having a weird name. It's easy to get your, your Twitter, uh, as just your name on there. Um, and then I have a sub stack where I send out, um, the threads in just kind of a nicer format. I have also added audio to them. Um, so that's sahilbloom.substack.com. My closing pitch, guys, is um, the reason that I wanted Sahil to come on was I wanted to explain the, the benefits outside of this game and the, and the principles that players are learning now and then what they can apply when they get into um, the real world. And um, the, the things that um, I'm learning off of Twitter mm -hmm. and just the Twitter list that I have, um, Sahil, I really appreciate your insight and, and what you bring. Um, guys, please subscribe to the show. Uh, make sure that you like this on YouTube. And then also, if you find something that is super interesting inside of this show, timestamp it, send it to your friend Tim or Susie or whoever, um, even a player, and we will catch you in the next episode. Thanks. Thank you for watching or listening or both to The Closing Pitch. If you'd like to get your closing pitch featured on the show, we use a podcasting app called Anchor where you can submit your statement or question via audio. Or what you can do is comment in the comment section of this post. We also accept direct messages. Please give us the A-OK -okay if you do send us a DM to use your statement or question on the show. Last thing, please give us a review on your platform of choice five star preferably and we value your opinion and this allows us to reach more people thank you for listening and we will catch you in the next episode